0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Okay, I have a really dumb joke. Two muffins were in an oven, and one of them said, hey, it's getting
2: pretty hot in here. Then the other said, oh my God, a talking muffin.
0: I'm Brendan Francis
3: Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations.
0: You just got a joke from Virginia folk singer Lucy Dacus. That'll break the ice. Matador Records just re-released her debut album called No Burden. Later on, we're going to speak with actor Rebecca Hall about Shakespeare, Bjork, and her new film, Christine. Also coming up, musician Tom Krell, a.k.a. How to
3: Dress Well, with a party playlist. Novelist Jade Chang with the story of an immigrant who wants to emigrate. And actor Jane Lynch tells us about the alter ego she brings to therapy. But first, small talk. Small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
4: Welcome to the first and only vice presidential debate.
3: Matthew, a major hurricane with winds over 100 miles per hour. When Colombia's peace agreement was put to
0: a vote, the people said no.
3: And now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Anne Friedman. She is a fine journalist and also co-host of the very fine podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. Anne, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week?
5: So I read this article in which BBC journalists set out to figure out what is the deal with left-handedness. And they ended up discovering that it's not just your hands. We have a left and right for pretty much everything.
0: Like? Eyes, ears. What What does that even
5: mean to be left-eared? I didn't know you
4: could
0: be
5: left-eared or left. I knew left-eye was a person. Listen, (laughs) left-eye is a very relevant person. Rest in peace. So, yeah, 30% of us are left-eyed, not just uh, deceased members of TLC. Okay. And you can, for example, test your left or right-eyedness by holding up a thumb in front of your face, Mm -hmm. putting a hand over one eye and then the other, And seeing which looks closer to you. Hmm. Oh, my
0: God. I'm left-eyed.
5: There you go. Yeah. But I'm right eyed Which
0: thumb did did you hold up, though? Your right thumb? The right thumb.
5: Maybe that means you're Hmm. (laughs) right-thumbed. Anyway. And then you can also be left-eared, which is the ear you favor when you put your phone to your ear. Oh. So are are either of you guys left-handed? I am not,
0: actually. I write right-handed, but I play baseball left-handed.
5: So that's a no. (laughs)
0: well Well, it's actually uh confuses certain pictures but yeah
3: yes for the most part i'm right but so the point of this article was to figure out why people are you know lefties at various things
5: yeah exactly and they're not sure why for example only 10 percent of people are left-handed though the theory is mean school teachers that essentially more people (laughs) would be left-handed if it weren't beaten out of them by (laughs) by teachers who who think it is somehow morally better to be right-handed and there's this anecdote Mm. um as well that the word left originates in the Latin word lift, L-Y-F-T, like the car service. And it means weak. So the idea that lefties are somehow weak and need to be
3: reformed. All right. School teachers evolving the species. (laughs) And thank you very much for the small talk.
5: Happy to be here and right-handed. And now time for cocktails.
3: Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. It's like history's your local swimming hole filled with booze. Call the EPA. First, the history part. This coming week back in 1951, I Love Lucy debuted on CBS TV. Barely.
0: Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: The most popular sitcom ever? Almost didn't happen. (laughs) It all started in 1948, when the radio series My Favorite Husband hit the airwaves, starring a redhead as funny as she was pretty.
6: Yes, it's the new gay family series, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper, two people who live together and like it.
4: It was the latest in a string of radio and movie hits for Ball. And for her, it was also a revelation she realized she was at her best in front of a live audience. You know the real reason I like Valentine's Day? Because it's such a good excuse to be all mushy and loud. I
7: love you, George! Liv, keep quiet! I love you, George! Liv, stop! What about Katie? Katie loves you too, George! Oh,
4: the lady next door. What about the lady next door? Soon, CBS asked Ball if she'd do a version of the show on TV. She said yes, on two conditions. That it be shot before an audience, and that her TV husband be played by her real-life spouse, the Cuban-born movie and music star, Desi Arnaz. CBS wasn't pleased. A show about an average American housewife married to a foreign guy? Who'd buy that? And as for the live audience, sitcoms had only ever used fake laugh tracks. Because how could you stuff an audience in a TV studio without violating fire codes? But there was more. Desi and Lucy wanted the show shot with multiple cameras at once, so they wouldn't have to stop the action to set up each take. Oh, and they were about to have a kid. So they wanted to shoot in their hometown, Hollywood, instead of New York, where most of the TV industry was. Finally, CBS acquiesced to all demands. As long as Lucy and Desi each took a pay cut of 1000 bucks a week, which they did, in return for owning 80% of the rights to the show. Good move. 11 million households a week tuned in to the first season of I Love Lucy, back when there were just 15 million TVs in all America. Lucy and Desi became millionaires. And soon, pretty much all sitcoms were filmed on multiple cameras before a live audience. So that was the history.
0: Now for the drink to go along with it, I am joined on the phone by Justin Roberts. He is a bar manager at La Descarga, a Cuban speakeasy in Hollywood, California, Justin, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make?
7: Now I'm making a rum cocktail because after doing a little research, I discovered that Desi Arnaz's grandfather is, is one of the original three founders of Bacardi. So I thought, let's tie in that.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. So
7: we've got Silver Rum, one of their higher-end rums. And I'm... Okay. Putting dried roses in that so you let it sit and macerate overnight wow. and to flavor it like roses, which is really cool. That
0: alone sounds like a Martha Stewart project. Like, <laughs> sounds attractive.
7: Does it look nice? It does. Now the red roses tie in with uh, Lucille's red hair, so that kind of ties in there. You know.
0: Oh, I see. Does it imbue the rum with some color?
7: Very, very faint. Also, we put spiced coconut milk, which is spicing it with nutmeg and some sugar, mm. and um, okay. egg white to get the froth, and um, an orange liqueur. There's also fresh lemon juice, of course. Got to be fresh squeezed. Okay. And, yeah, you take all that and you dry shake it to get the froth going, and then you shake it again with ice.
0: Oh, whoa, whoa, What does dry shake it mean? That's interesting. What you want to
7: do is when you're shaking egg whites, you don't want to just dump the ice in and start shaking because you won't get the same mm. level of froth and texture. You want that nice mouthfeel. I think
0: dry shaking is what happens to me when I watch certain political people on television.
7: <laughs> yeah, it's
0: dry heaving uh, as of late. <laughs> and then I need a drink. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> okay, what's next?
7: Um, and so then you strain that into a coupe, and just put a little dried rosebud on top.
0: So so what are you going to call this drink?
7: So I found a nickname for Desi Arnaz, the Cuban arm, because he would go hmm. up to people and, and hook his arm around him and say, listen, amigo, and whatever he was going to say, you were you were in for the long haul. You're- oh,
0: right. He was a socially gregarious guy and would yeah. kind of like bring you in like you were going to get a noogie, but he was really just going to talk your ear off.
7: Just, he wanted you to listen.
0: Justin Roberts, bar manager at La Descarga in Hollywood, California, Enrico, I had no idea until I heard that that Desi and Lucy pioneered the live studio audience concept we use.
3: I know. It's a little harder to fit the audience here into our studio, but they love it. Am I right, audience? Uh, what?
0: Sorry, guys. Give me a sec. The laugh track machine busted. What? Fix it. Guys, shut up.
3: Uh, it's nap time for our audience, but our cocktail recipes should perk you right up. Mm-hmm. You'll find them at dinnerpartydownload.org. Oh, they're awake. Hey. Hello. Live radio is unpredictable. Mm.
0: And just like that, they're gone. All right. We've <laughs> sipped cocktails, made small talk. Now, let's add music to the
3: party. And here to help is Tom Krell, who records under the moniker How to Dress Well. The Chicago native and Ph.D. candidate in philosophy, by the way, first turned heads in 2010 with earnest bedroom recordings. But on his fourth album called Care, he injects his heartfelt lyrics into dancey electropop.
0: Here he is to introduce himself and some tunes that might help introduce you to someone new.
8: Hey, this is Tom from How to Dress Well. The task of a great dinner party is to make it not seem like a dinner party, you know what I mean? Where you're like... Oh, I guess I'm eating now. I guess I'm drinking now. Oh, I guess now it's one in the morning all of a sudden. And yeah, this is my dinner party soundtrack.
9: Feels like I'm standing the
8: There's like a lot of songs from the 90s that we revisit now with some serious nostalgia and almost like guilty pleasure vibes. Like, get a load of that. But this song, it's genuinely fresh still. The first song you should play is I Love You Always Forever by Donna Lewis.
1: Those days, the, gone, to me.
8: the main instrumentation in the song is guitar palm mutes. Palm muting is a way of covering the strings so that you really only hear a melodic kind of plucking. So it's that. the interesting thing about this song is that it's angelic and super understated while also being like super anthemic So I'm imagining this song kind of comes on once you look around and you see people stop just chatting to the two people they know. The moment of transition from the like nuclear friend family to the small civil society of the party. (laughs) And then the next song is called Adrenaline. It's a song by a woman from Montreal named Carlyce Coverdale. She's an electronic artist, a producer, and super inventive arranger. And a lot of times an instrument you think you're hearing which sounds organic is digital, and an instrument you think you're hearing which is digital is actually organic-treated piano or something very simple. This culture we live in does a lot of this sort of hybridizing and confusing and playing with simulation versus authenticity. And sonically, I just think that's such a dope thing to play with. Even if you don't know what's happening, I think it still produces a very weird feeling in in your spirit when you hear it. This is the part in the party where you actually realize you've been speaking to a robot the entire time. And you're kind of into them. And they're into you. <laughs> the next song that I picked is Too Good by Drake featuring Rihanna. It's about not being able to connect with someone even though they're right in front of you.
3: And last night, I think I lost my patience last night.
10: I got high as the expectations. Last
8: when Rihanna's voice comes in at the top of the second verse, There's something in some combination of her delivery, the actual capturing of the sounds and the engineering. I could listen to her 10,000 times in a row and just be smiling the entire time.
2: And I hope you could take it. I hope you could take it up
1: I'm too good to you.
0: I'm way too good to you. You take my love for grand. I just don't understand
8: it. At the end of the song, there's this long-ish sample from PopCon, who's like a contemporary dancehall artist. It becomes like this weird sort of bricolage thing instead of just a traditional pop song. Nothing else sounds like this on the radio right now. I would play my whole record at your your next dinner party. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm not kidding at all. But um, I think the most chill party vibe tune on my new record is actually called What's Up?
0: It's
8: kind of cheeky. Like, that's kind of why I pick it to end the dinner party, too. It's kind of flirty. If you don't go flirty at the end of the night, you're doing everyone a disservice.
0: A party soundtrack from Tom Krell, aka How to Dress Well. If Francis weren't my middle name, it would be that. (laughs) His new album is called Care, and he's on tour now. All right. And, uh, folks, if you want to see for yourselves
3: just how natty we are, how about you join us at a real Mm. party we're throwing? We'll be taping our show live at the podcast festival called Now Hear This in Anaheim, California, on Saturday, October 29th. Full details and a discount code for tickets can be found at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
0: Stick around for Rebecca Hall, Jane Lynch, and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico
3: Galliano. Later, comic and actor Jane Lynch answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, a Bolivian dumpling divines Brendan's future. That's not a metaphor. But first, let's meet our guest of honor.
0: All right. And this week, it's actor Rebecca Hall. She first made a name for herself on the British stage, winning awards and plays by Shaw and Shakespeare. Audiences worldwide saw her in the Christopher Nolan thriller The Prestige. And she earned a Golden Globe nomination playing Vicky in Woody Allen's Vicky Cristina Barcelona.
3: Her latest role is generating more awards buzz in the indie film Christine. She plays Christine Chubbuck, a real-life local news reporter and host who in 1974 committed suicide during a live broadcast. The film portrays Christine as a decent and funny person haunted by depression and struggling with TV news's focus on grim crime. When we met, Hall told me the film's screenwriter, Craig Shilowich, had personal reasons for exploring the story.
1: He went through a sort of nearly 10-year extended period of severe depression. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know why it started and he didn't really know why it left him. <laughs> it was The whole thing was baffling. So when he came across the Christine Chubbuck story late one night on the Internet, he looked at it and he thought, wow, imagine if I had gone through what I'd gone through but been a woman and more than that been a woman in the 70s and Mm. more than that had had my work which was one of the things that got me out of it taken Mm. away from me would I have made it
3: did you speak to him because it it is actually fascinating the watching you in this film your posture is Mm. affected Mm. everything about it really feels like you've you've taken on this character did you speak to him about? I,
1: I I did Peripherally, I didn't really need to. It was there in the script. Also, I don't think there's anyone under the sun that doesn't know people who have gone through things like this. I I definitely have direct relationship and understanding of mental health issues with people who I've known. I mean, the truth is, Christine is someone who represents these things in the sense that we all know what it's like to get depressed. We all know what it's like to be stymied at work. We all know what it's like to feel unloved. It's really hard for us all to admit that if it were not for the fact of some arbitrary factors like mm-hmm. brain chemistry gender time and place we might all be capable of tipping over the edge in some way that's a horrifying thought but it's an it's a thought that you know i, I had to think about
3: did you what about her surprised you when to whatever extent you looked into her life what what surprised you
1: Oh, there were lots of facts that I... I mean, I, I grilled Craig about all of the stuff that he'd got from speaking to people, obviously. And I had 15 minutes of footage that I watched a lot. 15 minutes of her doing her news show where she's talking to someone about a zoning petition. It's quite dull, but I could glean quite a lot from that. Namely? Well, just listening to the, her register of her voice. And there was... I, I know that I was watching it and sort of thinking, well, here's someone doing her job but on some level she knows that she's off and mm, she's mm. desperately, desperately trying to perform all day what she perceives to be normal. Mm, and mm. sometimes she's really good at it. You know, Sometimes yeah. she excels at her work and she's brilliant and she's really good at pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. And other days she's really bad at acting and it jars and it's kind of terrible. And I thought, oh, there's, a, there's, a, yeah. there's something in that sort of duality
3: actually we we have a clip that I think speaks to this uh, this is a scene from early in the film where Christine is overcome while she's interviewing a man for her morning public affairs show
0: everybody
6: wants to come here right now people are coming here from sorry all can, can we country. just stop for a second Gene, um, Gene, yeah.
1: stop. we uh, can, you, can, you, can you get Gail? I thought she was meant to get some fresh flowers. Oh, yeah, I told her to. It must have slipped her mind. It slipped her mind? Well, I can't yeah. think about anything else. Sorry. So, you're going to have to. Uh, Someone get some fresh flowers. God.
3: obviously the job of a of an anchor is to constantly project that you're in control yeah and often to project that everything is jolly and fine yeah, that we're going to get on through top of this
1: everything. i do think there's some sort of poetic something or other that this is a woman who wanted to be famous for being a good journalist and for serving her community and she got famous because of blood and guts her death that's the reason why she's well known But I thought what was profound and important about the movie was that it's a story about someone desperately trying to live, trying to survive. And actually there's a lot of life and light in spite of the pain that she's in. And there's a chance that the headlines cease to be about the blood and guts and actually about the conversation that she signifies.
3: Maybe that's a good sentiment uh, from which to pivot to, let's say, happier topics. Which <laughs> okay. be. I first saw you actually in uh, a Shakespeare production of As You Like It, directed by your dad. My P- father, yeah. Peter yeah. Hall, who was one of the founders of the Royal Shakespeare Company.
1: It was indeed. Here,
3: <laughs> here is my question to you. I, for instance, grew up in a household that was really into classical music. And I, as a young man, I completely rejected classical music. Yeah. I was very into, you know, punk rock, the noisiest non-classical. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you had a similar rejection of Shakespeare. Of in, Shakespeare? Yeah, in theater. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the equivalent would be. Yeah,
1: if. I don't know. It was kind of. I suppose that's why I really fell in love with film really young. Really? Um, <laughs> was because it wasn't. It. But like I, I suppose my father is a kind of a militant Shakespearean. I would call it. You know, like there is there is nothing greater than Shakespeare, and Shakespeare did everything, and therefore there's nothing else left for anyone to do. Yeah. And cars I, invented I, by Shakespeare. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. But I. I I think a lot of what he says is true. So at a certain point it just feels juvenile to constantly be saying no 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 yeah, it's yeah. like I, I I actually agree with him on a lot of those things and oh, did yeah. from quite young.
3: Well maybe that then answers my next question which was going to be, you know, how you dealt with what I imagine would be the difficulties of having your dad as your director.
1: I always had a very good like relationship with my dad in terms around work. You know mm-hmm. like from a very young age he would take me to the theater and then Directly afterwards, ask my opinion on things. He always encouraged me to argue with him and to, but to support my argument. And that sort of combative sort of relationship that we had, I suppose, in a way, felt very natural to. Like taken into a rehearsal room because that's really the dynamic between a an actor and a director. And I, you know, I I didn't do it lightly. I felt deeply uncomfortable about it in the beginning. I was like, are you sure this is a good idea? And I had to have all sorts of rules. You know, when we first worked together, it was like, well, I don't want to be on the advertising. I'm not going to do press because it's too scary to go out to the world and say nepotism, nepotism. Judge me, judge me. (laughs) You know. And I and I was like, you know, and when we're in the (laughs) rehearsal room, let's not draw attention to the fact of that at all. And I'm with the actors, and I'm not going to have lunch with you and your pizza and i was all wow. very like you know
3: if i was your dad i'd be like you know on second thought forget it
1: <laughs> no he got it he got it but you know the truth is it was very professional and it worked and it was a joy to have that time working with him because he is one of the great theater directors yeah. of our times Doesn't and hurt. i you know what I'm, i'm not a fool i'm not going to say <laughs> no i'm not working with him because he's my dad
3: we have two standard questions that we ask everyone in the show the first is, mm. if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
1: Should you not ask me?
3: Yes. I bet you it's about your dad, now that I think about it.
1: It is, actually. <laughs> no, Sorry. it's fine. I'm actually right. These days, I'm really happy to talk about my father. I mean, isn't that just, isn't this a trap? Yes, because now i will be out us. there in the in the world the thing that everyone will then ask me.
3: Well, and so also, how do you expect
1: me to be honest about it?
3: Also, I get to then follow up and have you talk about the thing that you don't want to be asked, ask but you more. brought it up, so then I win.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm now trying to think of something really irritating and flip and uh, <laughs> facetious and.
3: <laughs> That's a win for me too. Either way.
1: Yeah, don't ask me what my next tattoo is.
3: Okay, you have a tattoo. Yeah, I have two. All right. Should I ask you what they are? No. Okay, there you go. We did it. <laughs> Our second question is kind of the flip of this, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything.
1: That I have a tattoo. Yes,
3: <laughs> but I know that now. It could be about yourself um, or anything in the world.
1: I can do an uncanny impersonation of Bjork.
3: Please do that now.
1: <laughs> My party trick is to do... Bjork doing any song that you tell ta- on the spot. Any song that you oh, no. say, then I'll do it in the style of Bjork. Oh god. I can't a- do it now. Oh come I on, can't. of
3: course you have no. to do it now. This is a radio show no. and this is an audio trick that you have. Oh, what song must it be? What is the I'm gonna ask the booth, what is the least Bjork song?
1: Yeah, that's the trick.
3: Our producer Jackson wants it to be happy birthday.
1: Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday (laughs) to you. There you go.
3: Rebecca Hall. She stars in the indie drama Christine. Rolls into theaters all this month. And, Brendan, we of course forgot... Bjork actually recorded a song called Birthday. I was going to say. With her band, the Sugar Cubes, which is what we're listening to right now.
0: You should have gone with something like Motorhead or (laughs) Megadeth or something. (laughs) We
3: blew it. It's
0: terrible. Missed opportunity, friend.
9: And now, time to eavesdrop.
0: Jade Chang's novel, The Wangs vs. the World, appears on just about every list of the fall's most anticipated books. Elle magazine calls it one of the best debuts of 2016. Today, we overhear Jade read an excerpt.
2: Hi, my name is Jade Chang, and I really wanted to write an immigrant novel that's kind of a rebellion against the traditional immigrant novel. You know, with immigrants who don't yearn for acceptance or struggle to fit in. I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of the novel. The main character is Charles Wang. He's just lost his fortune. So what does he do? He decides to drag his children across America on a crazy road trip in an attempt to get back to China and reclaim his former glory. And just so you know, this section's been a little bit cleaned up for radio. Charles Wang was mad at America. Actually, Charles Wang was mad at history. If the death-bent Japanese had never invaded China, if a billion misguided students and serfs had never idolized a balding academic, then Charles wouldn't be standing here, staring out the window of his beloved Bel Air home, waiting for those calculating from the bank to come over and repossess his life. Without history, he wouldn't be here at all. He'd be there living out his unseen birthright on his family's ancestral acres. A pampered princeling in silk robes, writing naughty, brilliant poems. Centuries of illustrious ancestors, scholars and statesmen, and gentlemen farmers all had bred him for teas unfurling in fresh spring water, for light-hearted games of chance played among true friends. Not for this, not for him, bastardized Peking duck, eaten next to a table full of wannabe rappers and their short, chubby, colored contact wearing Filipino girlfriends at Mr. Chow. Not for him, white women who wore silver chopsticks in their hair and smiled at him for approval. Nothing, nothing in his long lineage had prepared him for the Western worship of the Dalai Lama and pop stars wearing jade prayer beads and everyone drinking damn boba chai. He shouldn't be here at all. Never should have set a single unbound foot on the new world. There was no arguing it. History had thrown the first punch at Charles Wang, and then America had laid him flat. America was the worst part of it, because America, that fickle lover, used to adore Charles Wang, She'd given him this house, a beautiful Georgian estate. She'd given him his three children, infinitely lovable, even though they'd never learned to speak an unaccented word of Mandarin. She'd given him the cojones to turn his father's grim little factory that supplied urea to fertilizer manufacturers into a cosmetics empire. Yes, an empire of beauty built on fake pee. He never should have fallen for America. As soon as the happy, clappy, guitar-playing Christian missionary who taught him English wrote Charles' last name and spelled it W-A-N-G, he should have known. In any Chinese speaker's mouth, Wang was a family name to be proud of. It meant king, and it was pronounced with a languid, drawn-out diphthong of an O sound. Not Wang. Wang. But one move to America, and he went from king to, well, you know. Now that he'd lost the estate in America, all Charles could think of was the land in China. And after a few fevered hours of searching the internet, he'd uncovered vague stories of local councils far from Communist Party circles returning control to former owners, of descendants who, after years in re-education camps, managed to move back into abandoned family houses that had been left to rot. He stored each hopeful tale away in a secret chamber of his heart, hoarding them as he formed a plan. He would make sure that his three children were safe, that his fearsome and beloved second wife was taken care of, that his family was all under one roof. And then, finally, Charles Wang was going to reclaim the land in China.
3: Jade Chang. Her debut novel is called The Wangs Versus the World. That piece was edited for time and for some very salty language. You'll have to read it to get the full flavor.
0: Yes. Speaking of, coming up, I sample a sweet and savory Bolivian dumpling that augurs badly for my romantic future. Oh, no. And we'll also hear from Glee star Jane Lynch, who tells us how to live our lives and how to arrive at a party. I always entered to Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries ride with us and jane
3: into public radio valhalla when the dinner party download continues
2: the splendid table is all about the intersection of food and life conversation recipes and modern insights if you love to eat find the splendid table on itunes or your favorite podcast app
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new tune from music legend Leonard Cohen, and
3: Brendan gets his fortune read by a Bolivian pastry.
10: If you, like, eat a salt any and don't spill a drop on your plate, you'll be married quickly, and if you do spill, you won't get married at all.
0: It was harrowing. Gosh. But speaking of divine guidance, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson.
3: Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, And here to answer them this time around is actor Jane Lynch. Hello. Hello, Jane. Hello, Jane. Hey. Here's, here's a few things about your resume you may or may not have known. Ooh, please tell me. You are possibly best known for playing Sue Sylvester, the possibly. Ma- the Machiavellian cheerleading coach on the TV musical comedy Glee. Uh, that role earned you an Emmy and a Golden Globe. Yes, it did, indeed. You've also <laughs> stolen scenes in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Talladega Nights, and many other comedies, including the improvised mockumentaries of filmmaker Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. The latest of those comes out this week On Netflix, it's called Mascots. It is about a bunch of folks who dress up in ridiculous costumes as sports team mascots and the links they go to to win the Gold Furry Award at the World Mascot Association Championships.
9: Jane, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me, guys.
0: Isn't that a little bit redundant that they dress up in ridiculous costumes as sports team mascots? Yeah. <laughs> like, are there non-ridiculous costumes? There is
9: no such thing as non-ridiculous. <laughs> they're all ridiculous, and they're all fun, and they're, all, they're they all love what they do and take it very, very seriously. You play Gabby a kind Mm -hmm. of
0: legend of mascotting who Mm -hmm. injured herself doing a split for an entire football game. (laughs) Right. So so now Gabby's a competition judge. Right, she's now sitting in judgment. (laughs) How much of this movie is actually based on the reality of mascot subculture. Do you
9: know? Well, I, it's very close to it. And if you go on YouTube, you'll see that every year they indeed have a competition. All the mascots do routines as their character and then they give them uh, awards, a gold, uh, silver, and a bronze. Amazing. And um, it's nothing to be sneezed at. I mean, these guys, they really work really hard and these these are really inventive little routines. Uh, but yes, they're, they're quite devoted and they're non-professional, which means, of course, they don't get paid. So uh, they're doing this really for the love of it.
3: Your character, by the way, again, it's this kind of passive-aggressive competition <laughs> judge. Your character on Glee, an acerbic gym coach. Right. A 40-year-old virgin. You're a tough... Kind of sexually aggressive store manager. Mm-hmm. Now you seem like a perfectly pleasant person. Why do you think these kind of roles started happening to you? Um,
9: well, I'm I'm kind of fascinated with the evil that lurks uh, beneath the surface of everybody, and I, I, you know, mine is not that far. You don't have to dig too deep to find, to find the person oh, in me who can be sarcastic and demeaning, and um, you know, I think because I'm able to harness this for acting that. I'm not the victim of it as I was before. I do
3: you remember when that first came out? You're like, Hey, I can really do this.
9: Yes, I do. I, I, I was uh, in therapy and wow. I was complaining about something and my therapist said, I want you to come up with a character. And I came up with this character called the angry woman. And I wore a neck brace and a very tight red wig. And I wow. went into therapy and started to rant about things. And she was cracking up. I could barely get through wow. it without cracking up. But you know, when you can laugh at yourself, and you can laugh at those parts of yourself. You dressed up for therapy? That's I did. Amazing. I went in in a costume. I don't, are you sure that was a licensed therapist? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not sure she was a licensed therapist, but she was genius. And I thought it was a great assignment. She was dressed up like a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. She always kind of looked like a woodland sprite, as I recall. <laughs>
0: Wow. That is an amazing story. I really need to move to Los Angeles and seek treatment. Oh, it is
9: definitely Uh. indigenous to Los Angeles. You're not (laughs) going to find a therapist like this in New York. Did you you ever use that character in in sketches or anything? Yes, yes, I did. I did a one-person show in 1998 called Oh, Sister, My Sister. And it opened with the angry lady, and I always entered to Wagner's um, uh, Ride of the Valkyries. I opened with it. I had a monologue in the middle and a monologue at the end, and the monologues were exactly the same rant on a different holiday.
0: Oh,
3: I
9: so oh. she basically complains about the same thing all the time.
0: I think my father wrote that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, sh- I should, I should, I should check. Yeah, you may owe him royalties. <laughs> <Yeah. Jane. laughs> so, but so it sounds like you you tapped into your inner self to kind of find some of your uh, performance. Always, yeah. But you also have a grad degree in acting from Cornell. Yes. And uh, th- what's interesting is these guest films are mostly improvised. Right. And some people get the misimpression that that means you're just winging it. I wonder yeah. what techniques sort of training you draw upon as a jumping off point for improvising
9: it's not just winging it what you do is we have a script that's a very mapped out story a mapped out journey and the characters are very well described by chris and then uh, we improvise all the dialogue so we go away and take the thumbnail sketch he's given us for our character and then we flesh it out and we show up having done all of this work and all this preparation then you throw it all out Mm. And you just, mm. you, you stay open and spontaneous because you've done all your work. You've done the hard part. So you do like a dry run where you kind of think about how you're going to respond to a situation. I do it at, home, yeah, at home. I'll uh, like improvise this character in the mirror. <laughs> And, oh, then I'll, yeah. and I'll write things that, that that seem important to me like why she is the way she is uh, what she's trying to hide what how good she is at hiding it and that's the stuff I love to do
0: I don't know if I'd like that as an actor I mean what, uh, why do you have to go back and write Christopher Guest's movie like you know <laughs> do you get extra
9: pay for that <laughs> that's so funny no in fact we get paid a lot less <laughs> wow <laughs> but it's the joy it's, uh, it's so much fun oh sure they sell you on the joy <laughs> they pay us on the joy well we're not going to pay you a lot of money but we're going to pay you in joy
3: there you go Yeah. All right, so you play a judge in this film. Are you ready to adjudicate our listeners' problems? Yes.
9: Oh, you
0: betcha. I'm ready to dive in. Excellent. The first one comes from Danny in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. And Danny writes, Every time my family sings happy birthday at gatherings, my aunt treats it like it's an audition for The Voice. (laughs) She does these full-on Mariah Carey-style vocal runs that draw out the song, and she completely overshadows everyone else. Oh, no. She's not a terrible singer. I'd call her karaoke good. But the secondhand embarrassment we feel at restaurants is real, and it delays us from eating the cake. How do I let her know without hurting her feelings? No,
9: you'll hurt her feelings. You just can't. It's one of those things that you really just got to let go. She wouldn't be doing it and making a fool out of herself. She's in some joy when, when she 's doing it she 's yeah. loving it, so I think you just have to tolerate it and if you 're embarrassed look that 's where, where you have to dig deep and go, why would I even be in care about that
3: well because it 's drawing attention if you 're at a restaurant well
9: so what and also the <laughs> you, you know you could go further with that and say the attention should be on the birthday person, but you know what when, if a person really needs to shine that much. I let him have it. That's
3: nice. I can also imagine if I'm Jane Lynch, I'm watching that and go, and I know where my next character is going <laughs> from. I know. I probably will steal it. So. Okay. We'll look for it. It's yours. Here's something right. from Paige via Twitter, so we don't know where Paige is from. Right. Paige writes, What the heck am I supposed to say?
9: When someone comments on how tall I am, yeah. you were also a somewhat tall woman. I'm a tall person who would say that. It's just, Paige, what you have to understand first of all is about them. It's really not, not about you being tall. It's about how they feel next to you. They might be intimidated, ah. but it's all about them. It's, again, let it go. And there's no answer yeah. to the question. They were to say, why are you so tall? Just to... <laughs> My mother was. <laughs>
3: genetics it's called vitamin d milk yes yeah, there you go i will say that Paige is a woman and i think mm-hmm. there, there might be a gender implication I, here.
9: I, I do too especially if it's a guy who comes up to you and it's it's about him feeling short
3: do you find yourself having to like <laughs> make dudes
9: feel better about that yeah i do i always put my arm around him and say don't be intimidated by my height <laughs> no no i thought you should pat them on the head or say and you have a very straight part
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right Paige. there's your advice this next question comes from Margaret in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. Margaret writes, I'm having my boyfriend's family over for dinner at my house for the first time. They're conservative evangelicals. My boyfriend and I are not. I have a large early 20th century photograph on my dining room wall of a tasteful female nude. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What, if anything, should I do with this photograph? My instinct is to take it down. My boyfriend says leave it up. Advice. <laughs>
9: Yeah, whatever. I think, um, you know, the instinct to take it down, I completely understand it, but um, I would leave it up. It's your house. Mm. It, you mm-hmm. consider it art, and, um you know, they might be just delightful people who have no problem with a beautiful nude.
3: Yeah, that's the other thing. Just because yeah. they're evangelicals doesn't mean they can't appreciate art. Right,
9: and once you start doing that, especially in the beginning— You'll start tempering other things. This
0: is a slippery slope. You take mm-hmm. this down, then there's going to be no more heavy metal caroling. There's going to be no <laughs> drugs after dinner. Like, where exactly. does this stop? Where do you stop? Where do you draw the line,
3: people? You can't praise Satan anymore. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. Yeah.
9: <laughs> Jane Lynch, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you. Oh, that sounds terrible. But yeah, you use your best <laughs> instincts, people.
3: Jane Lynch, she stars in the new Christopher Guest mockumentary, Mascots. It debuts on Netflix October 13th.
0: And folks, lest you think this is a mock etiquette segment, we assure you all the advice provided on the show is drawn from years of experience, or at least from thinking about it for a good 15 to 30 seconds. So if you have a problem that needs moderate attention, email it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the main
3: course, the part of the show where we talk about food.
0: So Rico, imagine a dumpling with crunchy, flaky skin like a pie crust mm. with a spicy, gooey filling like a stew.
3: Have you been recording the dreams in my mind somehow? <laughs> I have.
0: I have. Was that Harry Potter I saw in there with Princess Leia braids? <laughs> We should talk about that. Anyway, what I described exists in reality. It's called a saltania. Mm. It's a Bolivian delicacy that was hard to come by in New York until three brothers of Bolivian descent started selling them. Okay. Alex, David, and Patrick Oripeza now have a place near Columbus Circle called. Bolivian Llama Party. Oh, nice. Yes, our type of people. And the other day I met up with David and Patrick, and I asked when Bolivians tend to eat these tasty treats.
10: So these are typically sold as a midday snack. They're the appetizer to your lunch. So, you know, you're typically in Bolivia, like your lunch is your biggest meal of the day.
6: I love the idea of a lunch appetizer. It's rise time, we super early, so basically they'll have tea and bread for breakfast, and then around 10 o'clock they have a salteña, and their lunch consists of like three or four courses, followed by like a nap.
0: What a wonderful place. Know, and it's... then you
10: have a light dinner.
0: So I'm looking at this and this looks like a robust empanada or sort of dumpling. It has a beautiful braid on it. It's the size of what, what would we say that is? It's like a
6: an iPhone one maybe. <laughs> <laughs> a large beeper.
0: You guys are city kids clearly. Uh, it's like the size of uh, half of a mango.
6: Maybe a small avocado. All
0: right so it's a Fat avocado with this kind of braid on top. A lot of cultures have these sorts of things. The delivery system for some sort of protein. What sets us apart from, say, an empanada? Well,
6: traditionally, uh, a lot of Bolivian food is focused on you know, kind of like grandma traditions. So, you know, you make it by hand, like the way people do pasta. We make it by hand. 100 pounds of flour every day in our kitchens. So the dough is made with the yellow chili, and uh, it's a Bolivian uh, yellow chili called Aji Mirasol. That gives the dough a bit of a sweet taste, so it's almost like a cookie-like, but slightly sweet, but the chili adds savory notes where it's not just like pie dough or it's just sugar. Uh, The inside is a gelatinized filling, so the idea is that in Bolivia, soup is everywhere. Soup is like, you know, you can't, you're not Bolivian if you don't eat soup. And inside is that soup. So you're getting bread and soup, but in a, in a but in a way where you can transport it to go to work because you know the are traditionally laborers. So you can take this with you, and you know eat, it, it stays warm for quite a while. So you can eat it whenever.
0: How, how does one keep soup in dough?
6: We uh, cook it with the base of a gelatin. So for depending on the filling that we're doing, we'll use like a cow foot or anything with a lot of collagen. A gelatin mix of some sort. Yeah, exactly. You break it down till uh, you create the gelatin. When that chills, it's nice and firm. Well, not super firm, but you have to work fast. You roll out the dough, you fill it, and you braid it. And the braiding part is super important because if it's not strong, your soup will come right out.
0: Okay, and so what's the classic filling?
6: Traditionally, Bolivians are... You know, it's chicken and beef. What makes them special is the way they're flavored with yahi
0: And so did you grow up eating these at home?
6: Yeah, I mean, all the time. It was uh, We didn't eat them enough because it's very hard to find. There was only like one or two spots. And
0: this isn't something a home cook would make because it's so labor-intensive? Well,
10: if your mother really loves you, <laughs> then she will spend the four days making this because you got to spend a day making the dough, another day making the filling, then rolling them, and then baking them. So... Got to have a lot of brownie points with your mom if she's going to make these for you.
0: So is the takeaway that your mother doesn't love you?
10: (laughs) She made us work for it, I think, is a better way to put it.
0: All right. So where does the name come from? Why is it called a Saltania?
10: The story goes, the folkloric tale is a lady came from Argentina, a region in Argentina called Salta, and she was exiled from Argentina, came to Bolivia, needed to make money, and created this. Mm. And people called it a Sultania because it was a lady from Salta who made it. So it was just known as that. The name caught on. And now every region in Bolivia makes their own different type of Sultania. It's like, it's like the American French fry in Bolivia pretty much. But do they have uh, Sultania in Argentina? They do. So we get a ton of Argentinians coming by the booth into the spots and being like, this is an Argentinian product. They just come to argue. They didn't even buy. They just argue, this is our product. You took it from us. And we're like, no, she came here, and we created this tradition around it and the culture. And it just goes on. And this guy comes every day. <laughs> the same
0: guy. I also read that when you're eating with a group, the first one who spills the liquid has to pay for the whole thing.
10: There's so many different tales of this, too. So if you like eat a salt and don't spill a drop on your plate, you'll be married quickly. And if you do spill, you won't get married at all. Or I've heard, um, what are some other ones you remember? I'm sure there's
6: a lot that are like bad sex for five years or something. <laughs> yeah, just or something also.
10: like you're just, yeah, you're just banned from the community if you spill a drop on the plate, pretty much.
0: All right. Well, my destiny awaits in this bite here. So let's let's move towards it.
6: Uh, this one right here is our brisket saltania. That kind of represents everyone's craze for smoked brisket in New York. So this is like salteñas in New York. So this is, has a bit of a smokier taste, but it's flavored with fennel and anise and uh, red chilies.
10: So how do I eat this? Okay, so you hold your you upright, the braid facing towards you. You take a bite out of the tip. Okay, so you just take a little bite out of there. You get the hole big enough, and you pour the yahuá inside.
0: Yaqua. It's like an herbal salsa, kind of?
10: Yeah, so basically this is the hot sauce, the salsa of Bolivia. Everyone's got it on their table. It's kind of like... Um, it's like Bolivia sriracha, pretty much.
6: So we're going to pour this in
10: on in the top of it? Inside, yeah. Once you have the little hole in there, you pour the salsa inside and you have two ways to go about it from there. You can take a spoon if you want to be delicate and make sure you don't get anything on yourself or you can just really go in, slurp, okay. suck, and get the juice out and then keep eating.
0: All right, I'm going to go for the second way, obviously, because that seems like the tougher way to do it. So can you record me while I do this? Okay. That crunch.
9: Mm. All
0: right, so I'm going to put a little bit of this in and then just go for it. Go for Is it going to splatter all over me or no? Yeah, okay. Yeah
10: that was an ambitious bite he took it was, it was almost almost half the salt onion i've seen it happen before that someone's taken that kind of bite and then s- s- sauce just squirts all over themselves and hit somebody it
0: didn't squirt so is that just because i have really good eating
10: skills beginner's luck
0: <laughs> does this mean i'm not going to get married
10: yeah i think uh no well you haven't oh wait there's a drop right there i think i oh, think no. that's it it's starting it's starting
0: <laughs> wait what does that mean again
10: bachelorhood for life, which isn't that bad in New York City, I feel like, so I
0: hope my mom isn't listening to this Alex and Patrick Oripeza, two of the three brothers behind Bolivian Llama Party, a Bolivian food spot in New York's turnstile food court. By the way, October 16th is the Bolivian Day Parade in Queens, and the guys are having an actual party, so head to dinnerpartydownload.org for details.
3: And folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Christina Lopez is our associate digital
0: producer, Jake Gorski-Engineered. And today we bid adieu to our associate producer, Nina Potok. Sigh. Sigh. Nina helped keep the DPD running like a well-oiled margarita machine. That's true. We are sad she is leaving, but wish her luck in her new audio adventures. Goodbye, Nina. Alas. Uh, But now, before we leave Nina and you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Leonard Cohen. Yes, that Leonard Cohen has a
3: new album out in a couple of weeks. It's called You Want It Dark. And here's the appropriately dark title track, bon appetit. If you are the dealer,
6: I'm out of the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker? We kill the flame. Magnified, sanctified, be Thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. A million candles burning for the help that never came. You want it darker? He nee he ne I'm ready, my lord.
0: Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. What? (laughs) Wow. (sighs) Guess that's a live audience for you.
3: Jackson, you're fired.
0: Okay, stop it.